How's it going everyone? It's Gavin Casey here, unscheduled on a Thursday. On yesterday's Rugby Weekly Extra podcast for the 42 members, we combined the Monday and Wednesday squads with Owen Toulon, Bernard Jackman, Murray Kinsella and I dipping into the financial state of the global game in light of recent events at Worcester and Wasps in England. We're glad that so many of you found the episode informative and enjoyable to listen to, despite the fact that it is a tough topic, and equally that a lot of you called for us to release the pod free to air so that you could share it with your non-member friends wherever they may be in the world. And we said, why not? So I'm going to throw to that episode in just a second, and you can listen to it in full, whether or not you are a member of the 42. Just before I do that... I wanted to give listeners a heads up that next Wednesday, that's the 2nd of November, Murray Kinsella, Bernard Jackman and I will be joined at the Harcourt Hotel in Dublin by Leinster and Ireland back row Will Connors for a special live event previewing Ireland's first November test with South Africa. We're going to have loads of chat, audience questions, prizes, a few drinks during and afterwards if you're partial, as well as the lads' live on-screen analysis set pieces, which have proven so popular in our past live shows. Tickets are available at Eventbrite and doors will open at 6pm for a 7pm start. We can't wait to see you there. Now, here's yesterday's members pod. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could have me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. Robbie Robbie Weekly. Little reverse pass. We need a solution. Uh, I don't know whether the solution is the current solution, how rugby clubs are run, because none of them seem to be making money. Worcester are just first in the line, uh, being exposed as the frailties of professional sport after the pandemic, da, 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 so forth. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Wednesday's Rugby Weekly Extra for the 42 members. It's Gavin Casey with you here, and on today's show, as promised a couple of times last week, we are going to discuss the financial state of the global game of rugby union and get into what's been going on in England, some of the difficulties facing Welsh regions and obviously as well where Irish rugby stands in all of this. Are we on solid footing? Should we, should we be worried? All of that sort of stuff. We will uh, make that determination towards the end of the show. We will also chat about the Southern Hemisphere. There's loads in it and we're going to crack on joining us to talk about it. Firstly is the 42's rugby journalist Murray Kinsella. Murray, how are you? Good, Gav. Delighted to see that the gang is all back together for the first time since, what, July or even before the, the All Blacks series over in uh, New Zealand as well. So, yeah, great to see the lads all on the same call. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's great to see Bernard Jackman. Don't be fooled by his mahogany bookcase behind him. He is a man who has felt the pinch in his roles as head coach of Grenoble and the Dragons. So pretty well qualified for this conversation. Birch, how are you? Good, yeah. I never had money, so um, in in rugby, so I I I, I don't miss it. But um, yeah, no. Look, unfortunately, this is a a sad and disturbing topic, but I think it'll be good to trash it out and um, give the listeners a um, an insight into where it's at and and where it probably needs to get to. Yeah, certainly is. It's one that a few listeners have actually requested as well. So it's nice to let them steer their ship as well and. Um, no better man as well to really get into that chat than Owen Toolan down in Australia. You've got the Southern Hemisphere's perspective on this, Owen. How are things firstly? Yeah, all good down here. 28 degrees in Sydney today. Life is good. Oh, that's disgusting to hear, I have to say. <laughs> uh, I hear actually on the topic of Sydney or Australia that there are 
men at work raising funds for Ed Sater, who people will know that lost her luck, who was recently diagnosed with motor neuron disease, had to retire from rugby. What's the situation there? Lads are getting on bikes, are they? Yeah, the Down Under for Ed campaign. So they're cycling a thousand kilometers from Byron Bay to uh, Sydney. Ed actually used to play for Eastern Suburbs Rugby Club in Sydney and, and actually got his first contract with the uh, New South Wales, a junior contract before heading to, to Leicester Tigers. And um, you got to know a guy called Sam Harrison over in Leicester, a scrum half that's uh, from Sydney. So they've gotten a group of lads together. I know James Hansen's involved. He would have played with Ed at Gloucester. And uh, Jeff Parling, friend of the show, also uh, Leicester Tigers, who's jumping on the bandwagon, I think about halfway down to, to finish off the cycle with the lads. So yeah, they're raising much needed funds, obviously for M&D. Um, Ed's campaign is for Ed campaign. And there's a fight M&D campaign, which is also linked to the, the Dottie Weir Foundation. So I think we're going to post the, the GoFundMe link. So for any, any listeners out there, please uh, jump on the link and provide some much needed support board for a topic that I know is uh, very close to our hearts from a, a rugby perspective. So yeah, good on them for, for the thousand glamour cycle. It's a no mean feat over five days. I think they're doing it. Jesus. No, it is no mean feat. Indeed. We'll post the GoFundMe link in the description to the pod. If anybody wants to donate there or get involved in any way and the very best of luck to the boys involved in that cycle. Just before we get into the, well, it's going to be part of the financial chat, I guess, but I thought it'd be good to lay some contextual groundwork a little bit quickly before we properly lift the bonnet on this. And some of these questions might have obvious answers to some of our listeners, but I feel as though they're worth getting into for some of the listeners who maybe dip in and out of rugby or listen to a couple of podcasts and watch a couple of games a week and have normal lives and jobs, unlike some of us and some of our other listeners as well. So, Murray... Just to establish how rugby clubs actually make money in the first place, like to what extent is the typical club dependent on gate receipts? To what extent is the typical club dependent on TV income? Can you give us a rough breakdown of how that actually works? Well, the issue is that the clubs don't make money really, Gav, unless, True, actually, unless yeah. they're in France. And even in that case, it's not a, a certainty. Um, but yeah, I suppose the revenue that comes in is gate receipts, sales on match day with food and drink, etc. And that side of things... Then the, the the pot of TV money, obviously, that, that's pooled together in most instances instances within their league, say the URC sell their rights, top 14 sell their rights for for the top league and the Pro D2 premiership for theirs. Um, and so that's a, a collective pot that, that they, they draw from. There's obviously another commercial element with, with merchandise, etc. That does seem probably underexploited in rugby at the moment, um, but that'll be another strand of it as well. <clears throat> And the reality is that a lot of the clubs have been bankrolled by benefactors um, hugely as well. So, so there's money coming in there, certainly when they're uh, in troubled times to, to keep a lot of them afloat really has been the reality of it. Um, and of course that happens in France as well with, with very generous benefactors in many instances. But um, yeah, I suppose the prominent areas you're looking at are the, the TV money and gate receipts. That's the lifeblood really. What was the breakdown in your roles as head coach, Birch, at Grenoble and Dragons? Like, did it fluctuate between the two? What proportion of income would be? Ah, uh, in France, yeah, yeah. In in France, obviously, the the level of spectators at games um, far exceeds you know the Welsh regions, um, and even some of the figures that you see published 
um, are exaggerated um, uh, because you know it, it, I, I, we had crowds in in, New, in Newport, maybe eighteen hundred people um, some days, um, and whereas in 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 France in Grenoble, um, the Stade Zab Stadium holds just under twenty one thousand, and we would sell the first three seasons we sold it out pretty much every every home game. Um, so yeah it's 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 much more significant obviously the the tv contract in the in the top 14 um compared to the urc even though the urc has got better um but it doesn't it doesn't compare um at all and and interestingly in a time when tv contracts are getting harder to to negotiate for for governing bodies or stakeholders the the top 14 um deal with canal plus which is a four-year contract for 454 million that was an increase of seventeen percent on the previous deal, which is it's going the right way, you know, because the cost of the cost of everything is going up. Um, and I suppose from a from a regional point of view, in Wales, the money from the TV deal at the time went to the WRU, or sorry, it went to the um, the governing body that that runs the competition, and then they divvy it out to the WRU, and then it's it's drip fed down to the, to the regions, but. We it's funny how the model in Wales worked is that it was based upon the only way you could get money off the union, even though we were owned by the union, um, was because we became owned by the union at a later stage, was per international player you had uh, and per day in camp. And obviously at the Dragons at the time, we didn't have many internationals, so we were getting far less than the other regions. Um, and the only way to get money was to was to get internationals. Um, but in 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 France, it's it's different. It's the top fourteen clubs get, um, the same amount of, of that deal. So your your TV money's locked in. Obviously, the current deal is four years. So if you stay in the top fourteen for four years, you've got, um, really good sight of of where your income comes. But also, from a sponsorship point of view, I mean, it doesn't, um, it doesn't compare. I was in Lyon last week, and and I spoke to their commercial person. And she told me, you know, and I saw them. I, I I saw it on the boards. You know, they have 138 different sponsors. So they would have their, you know, their international level sponsors, you know, their, their category A, their category B, their category C, their category D, down to such an extent that, you know, and this was the same in Grenoble, you know, you own a boulangerie on the corner, you, you're you officially a partner and you get five five or six spots um, at match tickets per match plus um, a high table in a in a tent with three and a half thousand other partners and it's finger food and it's free drink um it's very informal you know sometimes i think we can make it for too formal where you know the sponsors are at a table and it's very difficult to move around whereas in 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 the events in the top 14 um you know the the Boulan, the owner of the boulangerie has the same access as the 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 multinational CEO uh, to to be able to mingle and it's just a real festive atmosphere and to be a partner of the club is something that goes from generation to generation you know um so look at it, they've done they've 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 embraced this in a, in a far different way than the English and the Irish and and the Welsh and the Scots and probably because let's be honest rugby was professional in France for far longer than it was professional um you know uh, there was a lot of under the table payments um so they they've 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 known that they they eat what they kill and um i i think it's a much better model and and, and i did a piece last weekend i think that the the media managers and the marketing people um should be sent over there to spend some time with those clubs because they understand they're not perfect but they understand their role um in terms of feeding and fueling the professional rugby entity 
um, which I think sometimes where the national governing body basically um, spoon feed everything that can get um, forgotten about or ignored. We'll dip further into that in a while. Owen, what was your experience of how this breaks down in your jobs in Australia and in Japan more recently? Yeah, very different environments, I have to say. Um, Australia is a is a a model that is very different to Europe. I think um, essentially the the states own the the Super Rugby franchises, so Queensland, um, ACT, and New South Wales are, are owned by by the, those state uh, rugby unions. Um, and in Melbourne, it's uh, essentially a private entity, but it's Victorian Rugby Union that own the Melbourne Rebels, and they've been th- down the route of um, private ownership models. Howard Mitchell initially lasted two years, and then um, Andrew Cox lasted a year. So, and the only other private owner owned uh, team in Australia is the Western Forces, who's owned by Twiggy Forest, is one of the richest people in Australia. So, a, a bit of a kind of mixed model. Um, again, financially really, really struggling. Um, Super Rugby as a product is on the wane. Obviously, you're trying to generate money through gates, but also TV money, and there's a disparity even there between what's happening in, in New Zealand and what's happening in Australia. Um, compare that to Japan, which is, this is probably the unfortunate consequence of trying to, the external market pressures that exist in Japan based on uh, ownership model of the companies own the rugby teams and essentially it's not a model that's based on generating revenue it's based on prestige and reputation essentially and i would say the ability to uh, service debt and write off tax from a japanese company perspective so so they throw tens and tens of millions of um dollars at their rugby programs for for nothing in return there's no tv deal uh, there is an element of sponsorship but ultimately the companies themselves sponsor the rugby team, so it's a it's a model that doesn't um, isn't conducive to to making money. But what it's done to, I guess, Southern Hemisphere rugby is you've got unions with not a lot of surplus revenue trying to match wages being offered in Japan that that isn't done on a basis of uh, strong business foundations, just on a basis of as I said, prestige and reputations that the, the big company bosses want to have a good rugby team and, and they're not so concerned about those rugby teams generating money for them. They're, they're making plenty of money in their, in their primary businesses. So yeah, two, two, uh, two models on the either end of the spectrum, I have to say. And, and just on that, Gav, like it's fascinating that the first few minutes here, we've seen the disparity of models across the global game and how different they are. Even look here at home, like, or if you run Irish rugby and that's where the, the revenue is generated, the national team in Ireland, the men's national team generate 80% of the revenue <clears throat> and that feeds really all layers of the game. It's it's absolutely pivotally important and the provinces are an extension of the RFU and, and that's how our model works. Literally across the pond in England, it's private businesses. Each club is a private business. The RFU then pay those clubs to take their players away and play international rugby. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting that you know, 25 years or so into professionalism, there's still this disparity all over the the globe. And actually 25 years is still relatively young. And that's something I would say, like we're still at the early stages of rugby, but it's clear now based on recent events that there's an urgency in 
in getting a bit more and not necessarily uniformity everything doesn't have to be the same but just a bit more stability like Birch and Owen have flagged this very recently just about how those foundations are kind of built on sand so really it's about getting maybe digging up those sand foundations and laying down genuinely uh, you know strong foundations that the game can can grow a little bit off well recent developments as you say as you say are going to be subject of a parliamentary inquiry in the UK I believe speaking of what's been going on in the premiership and particularly the very sad story of Worcester and more recently a similar story at Wasps and I wanted to get into the premiership and we're going to kind of go country by country but obviously boys feel free to link it back to Ireland we will have a specific Irish section as well um, where we dip into that but just because the premiership and those two clubs have been in the news so much recently maybe starting with yourself Murray it I guess from the outside looking in it's confusing that the premiership can be such a strong product or so it seems right in that it has a lot of history it has healthy attendance figures uh, they recently reduced the salary cap we may get into that in a while uh, but it is also seemingly always on the brink of financial ruin so what's actually going on there why is it the case that this supposedly strong product is financially weak it seems i suppose there's there's loads of layers to it but an overall issue is that the clubs have been spending beyond their means. You know, the, the revenues that they're generating aren't sufficient to cover their costs. And in, in this case, I suppose, a, the big one being player salaries, you know, that's grown really quickly. And I totally get that sometimes, especially early on, you've got to spend big to make a good product and attract people to it. And the payoff might be longer term, but really the English clubs have probably got themselves in, in trouble that way, you know, um, and I personally, I struggle with this one because I think rugby players are underpaid for the physicality they expose themselves to, the danger of their jobs, earning, you know, an average of around 100k, I think, in the premiership almost doesn't seem sufficient for, for what you're putting your body through and the risk you're exposing yourself to. And yet, what those players are doing, what they're delivering isn't actually covering the cost of, of, of themselves, if you, if you know what I mean. You know, it's probably not the best business model to be spending more than you're actually bringing in <laughs> in very basic terms and that's been that's been the case and and it's definitely been mismanaged like one of the most revealing things now yeah you're right they're, they're being dragged in front of essentially the the british the uk government and you know we're seeing debt of nearly half a billion amongst all the clubs um you know worcester and Worcester aren't the only ones who've, who've been struggling in this regard and i think one other thing that french rugby does well and we're probably going to constantly refer to that model because they really are the leaders is they have a an independent body that's the financial watchdog, the DNACG, I think it's called. And, you know, they're independent of the LNR and FFR. They're constantly keeping an eye on clubs, how they're running, how financially robust they are. And there's sanctions and um, there's consequences for not being sound in that ma manner. It's really becoming clear now that the RFU and, and PRL probably both have maybe been turning a blind eye to some of that mismanagement. Um, and that's got to be tightened up m drastically and massively. Again, it's easier for us because the RFU is overseeing all of all of what's happening on our, on our shores, and it's a much smaller game as well. But yeah, English rugby has got itself in a really worrying, troubling position, um, and it's really come to a head now. Obviously, the pandemic has been a an accelerator of that, but even before that, there were definitely signs that this was coming. Owen, what's your interpretation of the salary cap, and I guess? why it seems to have been ineffective in this regard because there are two ways of introducing a salary cap right you can have a salary cap 
as a percentage of revenue, i.e. Um, you can only spend a certain amount of what you're actually generating, or you have this flat rate that England has had, and that, strictly speaking, allows clubs to spend beyond their means once they're beneath that cap. So if you look at Wasps, just because they are a uh, topic in this situation, as far back as 2014, they spent 103% of their income on salaries. By 2017, their account showed that there was, uh, and I'm quoting here, a material uncertainty to continue as a going concern. In 2022, we know what's happened since. So I, I don't know, maybe like because I've seen a lot of um, English rugby fans particularly both blaming the salary cap, uh, but also others saying that it has had no role in this. Am I even putting too much of a focus on it? No, I don't think so. I think like any business, you've got to live within your means. But also the nature of sport is you need to be winning to generate revenues, to attract top sponsors, to at attract top players. So it's almost like a vicious cycle. How, how do you get to that point where you're able to compete with the big spenders that have the the resources to to be able to spend at the I guess the cap of, of that um, salary cap, um, and that that is the challenge. And I think the financial transparency is is crucially important here. That that there is line of sight on on clubs' books, uh, an independent regulator that understands I guess the uh, pressures that clubs are under, um, and it is a consequence of. I keep referring to it like external market pressures, England or the premierships trying to be the best competition in Europe. They're vying for the best players with uh, the top 14 in France. Um, and those salaries keep edging further and further and further up. Um, we mentioned Japan be, being the other one as well. So it's a really difficult scenario for them. It, if you look at MLR, for example, the, the salary cap, the money has to be paid up front at the start of the season. I think it is um and even through that transparency and the kind of financial guidelines by the tail end of last year's MLR season two teams were were kicked out of the competition the Gilgronis and the Gilatinis, who were ironically the top two performing teams in in the MLR so uh while you're trying to create structures to to ensure that um I guess those clubs are are able to continue continue as a business um there's always side deals being done, isn't there? And I think mm. like it's it, it's littered across mm. probably most professional sports that while teams will potentially say that they're they're staying within the salary captors means uh, uh, to get beyond that. I think you can. I think the Avalor is a is a a massive example of that when you look at the the profile of players that that have headed to America. And I think the top paid player is something in the region of fifty thousand US dollars and. When you look at the profile of players that have gone over there, they're definitely definitely not been paid fifty thousand US. So, mm. um, yeah, it's an it's an intriguing topic. Even in England, Birch, there are ways around it because we've seen teams flout those rules and get caught. There are probably others who haven't been caught. But if you look at how the salary cap has been reduced, uh, specifically for the pandemic, it was taken down from I think seven million pounds to six point four, and then for this season it was supposed to be five. But there was a grace period at the end of this 6.4 million year where you could re-sign players almost under that cap and whatever you re-sign them at would only count as I think 75% of it of the contract's total value under next season's cap of 5 million pounds next season being this season sorry so I think it was Rob, Pax Rob Baxter pointed this out 
some of the clubs who had even voted on a further reduction of the cap to five million pounds were rushing to resign players whereby in reality the total value of their contracts would exceed five million pounds but fit under the cap on a technicality like I guess on a, if you look at it in a kind of overview sense, the purpose of the salary cap being reduced over the course of the pandemic was actually for the good of the clubs, even if they were frustrated by it in that it made it more difficult to attract marquee players from other leagues and to compete with France and even in some cases now the URC. But I guess if clubs are, uh, like I, I don't know, it, it's tough to blame clubs either for just trying to be as competitive as humanly possible, even under those limitations, because that's actually how business works. Like, this isn't really any different to, I don't know, the corporate world either, is it? No, it's not. And and the fans, um, the fellow players, the, the the sponsors will demand um, ambition, you know. So, you know, Leicester were able to bring Andre Pollard um, in on, on a reportedly 600k. Zach Mercer, who's the player of the year in the top 14, is coming back uh, to Gloucester next year as a, as a marquee player. Um, obviously there's the attraction of being able to pick up 25 grand a, a match match fee with England for, for Zach Mercer um, to come back but they haven't really struggled I, I don't think I think there's they've been able to keep a lot of the marquee players or the, or the top talent in in uh, in England in the Premiership because for the English players there's that lure of playing for England which is very lucrative um, financially and obviously in terms of prestige Um. I think if you look at I don't think the salary cap is the issue here at all um, because it's it's the old debt that's actually screwing them over and I think realistically if you look at and compare it to France and, and the, the idea of of the top 14 clubs being all over English placed players is nonsense they actually prefer to go to, to get a Springbok or an All Black um, or a Wallaby um, and I know Zach Mercer has gone there and Sam Simmons has gone there but real, realistically I think it, it'll be one hand uh, one you know uh, on five fingers the the players that the top fourteen clubs are genuinely after, and then for those English ones, the the fact that they want to play for England will keep them there anyway. But the market is just so much bigger in France. The the salary cap deserves to be bigger there because their budgets are bigger. You know, so as I said, the top fourteen um, TV deal is a hundred million, the BT deal is thirty five million. You know, um, so thirty five percent. The the final last year, um, I think between Cast and Montpellier just over 3 million people um, watched it, you know, 2 million more than the Premiership. So the Premiership is probably, the salary cap is, is, is even more than it probably deserves to be in terms of their their revenues. Um, but the problem is, it's the debt that they're carrying. You know what I mean? So we knew Wasps were in trouble last year when they couldn't re-sign Fafita, the All Blacks second row who went to, to Scarlets. Probably Fekatoa was released because he was a high earner as well, to be honest. But when you're carrying over 100 million worth of debt, you know, saving 250,000 on uh, or 300,000 on two players, it's not going to make um, a big enough difference. So this is the issue f- for me in terms of English club rugby. I think it can be financially viable um, with the salary cap as it is. Um, not sorry, it won't be viable, but they'll survive. They won't die. Uh, but they have to find a way of getting rid of all this debt over over. You know, half a uh, half a billion uh, worth of debt is just going to be a um, a noose around their neck, and that's the beauty of the French system is that you can't carry debt over till the following year. So, for example, um, God forbid if anything happened to Jackie Lorenzetti or um, 
Dr. Dr. Wilde at Stade Francais, uh, uh, so the president of Racing, the president of Stade Francais, if anything happened to them, you have a chance of finding an, a buyer for the club because there's not massive debt uh, because that has to be cleared every year. So that means you're always going to get, well, sorry, it, it looks like you're always going to be able to get a millionaire to take on board that club's uh, running costs, which maybe he needs to write a check for a million euro at the end of the year if they've had a bad year. But that's a lot better than, than what you know someone needed to do to take on Worcester or take on Wasp where um, effectively you're looking at over 100 million or, or Worcester, I think it was 35 million worth of debt. That's not really feasible anymore when the game isn't shown signs of growth. So I think that the only way for English rugby to reset is to find a way of clearing that historical debt. Um, and that's not an easy thing to, to do. And that's a that's interesting because Mick Crossan, the, who's obviously heads up London Irish, he's, he says he's willing to give his club away for free in an interview with the Daily Mail. Uh, but there's obviously, what is it, nearly 40 million debt there reportedly that you've got to take on and, and clear. And that's the thing, Perch, as well. It's like, who's going to take that on? The the other point is that clearly there's, there is more potential for Roby in England in, in, specifically to be more commercially viable. Like CVC, the private equity fund who've invested in rugby they're, they're certainly not foolish they, they're not going to throw money away at a sport they don't see as having potential now obviously the pandemic disrupted plans there but you know they've sent, sunk 200 million into English rugby hundreds of millions into Six Nations URC so clearly they they believe that there's scope for increasing the commercialization of the sport um, and that's a massive part of it. it's how you actually do that and that's kind of the big question there have been loads of different ideas bandied around Birch is right about the the manner in which they do in France and promote the game and how loved it is over there. They have the advantage of having the history of their top 14, like what's that, 1892, the competition's created in. And as Birch knows well, people still kind of talk about those early, early eras and clubs being successful back then. And there's an absolute trope of, of, of that kind of history behind uh, different clubs. And that helps a lot. And it takes a long time to build that. But... Um, yeah, it's 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 fascinating to me that CBC have sunk quite a bit of money into the game. We haven't quite seen changes because of that. I don't think any great drastic changes. I know Steve Lansdowne, the Bristol uh, owner, recently was qu- critical of them. He said it's been disappointing so far, that link up with CBC. So we're kind of waiting to see what happens with that. Yeah, because if you look at the time that that money was invested, that $200 million in 2018, now I know this, this is just a, a press release, but... Premiership Rugby Chairman Ian Ritchie said the investment takes the clubs to a new level and is the heralding of a new era. The CEO Mark McCafferty uh, said that the key thing for the next few years is to build the facilities, the infrastructure and the investment in central marketing, which is all good in theory, Owen. But I guess if you're already saddled with what might have been as much as, I guess, six or seven hundred million in debt back then, we don't know necessarily how the 200 million has been spent or if it's all been spent yet or what proportion it has been used to clear the debt. Um, it's a lot more difficult to actually for that money to actually make a difference, right? Yeah, hundred percent. But dude, I think Murray hit on an important note that it's just ill-timed. The pandemic wasn't it? Because mm-hmm. it was twenty eighteen when they made the the twenty seven percent stake at two hundred million, uh, and ultimately that money was there to try and invest in the game, but also probably service a little bit of debt, uh, and that obviously hasn't materialized. So, so. Obviously, the, the the clubs have had to go to to the government, uh, and and they've had to step in as a lender as a last resort at the kind of height of the pandemic. So, 
uh, it ultimately was at a at a really really badly timed for the Premiership, and and it's coming home to roost now, isn't it? With those with those two clubs going under, but I also think it's important the the product itself was the Premiership. Like there's been a call to to ring fence the Premiership itself, but I think what the Premiership soccer does so so well is there's a story both ends of the ladder, isn't there? You've got your race for the title, but also the threat of relegation is in itself a huge, huge story and maintains interest levels across the competition. And when you're halfway through the premiership, you pretty much know half the fixtures are are meaningless without that threat of relegation. So I think in terms of gaining interest, generating excitement around the product, I think to have a ring fence team or competition with 10 teams in it without the risk of, of relegation, I think would be ill-fated. Just looking at Wales then, Birch, uh, there were reports yesterday or at least some suggestions of two of the four regions applying for emergency loans to pay salaries at the end of this month. Um, Murray, you were on a call, I think, as well, um, a URC call at which this surfaced. So maybe I should start with you. Are we able to talk about that actually firstly? Or? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I was on the call Martin and I. It was, it was news to me, I'll be honest, on the call. It was um, Rob Cole, one of the Welsh journalists, asking Martin and I about this. Um, and it was fascinating insight. He, he said that, yeah, two of the regions are, are looking for support to get through to the end of the month, which um, I suppose isn't a great shock. And Bert will give us more insight into the, the financial side of, of Welsh rugby. Martin and I's viewpoint on it was, you know, basically that's that's Welsh rugby's issue to, to resolve. He said they've had assurances that and I'm paraphrasing, everything will be okay and that um, the WRU will, will sort that out. He did underline that they've agreed to to have the four regions in the URC and it's really important for them to continue with 16 teams and that's kind of the URC's main focus. And again, it highlights the unique nature of the competition that our provinces are part of. It's the different unions all together and, and I suppose... Um, you know, they're all part of the URC board, but they've got their various different concerns going on and even their different models as well. But um, yeah, that was that was a, a bit of a kind of uh, bolt from the, the blue in, on the call yesterday with Anai. But at the same time, you're not surprised to hear that. You know, we've heard lots about dragons even in the past. And, and as we say, Birch will give us a bit of insight there. Yeah, Birch, will the WRU sort it out firstly, do you think? I think, um, and I'm speculating here, um, I would imagine that they will sorted out short term um, because as a stakeholder in the URC um, I think the WRU can't afford to be in breach of their own URC um, stakeholder agreement TV contracts as well um, plus you can imagine the mutiny and negativity back towards the WRU from whatever region they uh, region's fans even though they're obviously not that well supported but I think it would be a It'll be wholesale um, negativity across the Welsh uh, rugby public if they let one go to to the wall like this, you know, mid-season, um, just because they they couldn't give them a short-term loan to to pay the salaries. And I and I think I think if you look at the Welsh negotiations between the regions, I remember Di Young coming out publicly last year. You know, Dean Ryan came out publicly and, and said, "Look, it's it's madness. I mean, there's no." Um, there's no plan for funding for a year, two year, three years. So it's very difficult to um, to build to build a squad. It's very difficult to, to to plan with any certainty because we don't know what kind of money we're getting. So the old model 
um, which I spoke about, where you knew what you were getting based on international appearances in terms of uh, that, that's been, that's that's running out. Okay, so that's running out. So they're looking to how they can fund them better. And obviously, the Welsh Rugby Unions, the Welsh regions took on a £5 million loan each in COVID uh, to get them through that. And that's, they have to pay that back now. Um, and that that's taken out of the cash flow that they don't have. Crowds are pretty disastrous. Cardiff actually are starting to get um, a few in on a, on a Friday or Saturday night. But in general, the Scarlets are very poor this year. The Ospreys are are poor, and the Dragons have have won two games, but their crowds are still, um, still quite poor. I think there was five thousand eight hundred at the Welsh Derby, um, which wouldn't be wouldn't be great. So, um, I think that long term and medium to long term, where the WRU have identified that three is best. I think they they're pretty committed to that, um, and they obviously behind the scenes. There was there was efforts to get Ospreys and Scarlets to merge maybe eighteen months ago that blew up um, but I think uh, they may even go to two east east and west so merge the Scarlets and and, and, Car- and the Ospreys and try and merge the Dragons and um, and Cardiff with maybe a development team up north that's certainly something that's been muted um, privately if not publicly um, in the past so they're at a like I spoke about the, dub- the, the English clubs having to really reset and take stock and build something that's sustainable. I think the Welsh regions, which influences us, because um, obviously you know we're used to having four fixtures uh, from Wales every year. Uh, but look, at it, I don't think it'd be a bad thing to be honest. If if they had three teams who were quality, you know, we've seen the influence of three South African or of four South African teams um, on the on the league. If we could get three Welsh teams who were genuine contenders. Um, I think that'd be that'd be great. Obviously, it'd be better if we could get four, but I I just don't see the WRU. They've shown no interest in in funding those four teams properly, to be honest. And I'm not surprised. I, I think it's amazing they've lasted this long, um, being able to I suppose pay the wages. To be honest, just before we talk about Ireland in a little bit greater detail, like why is that relationship so fractured, Bert, between the WRU and the regions? Is it fair to say that? on a decision-making level, at a sort of a board level, there's a massive amateur rugby influence wherein there's actually no interest in the regions to begin with among maybe even a majority of people who are calling the shots there. Yeah, the way the governance of the w, of the WRU is set up is that you often you more often than not have people who have very little involvement or love for the regional game at the higher end of the WRU. And... Uh, um, so the community rugby funding is ring fenced okay that's ring fenced so no, during COVID there was no effect on that whereas the regional rugby which is the pro side of it um, was well, wasn't so again there's no certainty there's no ability to plan it's it's basically um, you know it's it's just uh, live by the seat of your pants. That's that's the way the financial operation. And I I thought by going to the Dragons, being under WRU ownership, would would change that. But in fact, the reality was because the way the um uh, the the governance is set up, we actually had no benefit really from being bar the fact that we we're probably not you're probably going to get paid at the end of the month. But in terms of having access to any additional funding, even when you had a really good reason for why it would make sense, not just for the Dragons but for the development of Welsh players in the future um, the agreement that was in place meant that for every pound they would have to give a drag uh, uh, the Dragons region they have to would have to give that everywhere um, and obviously you know 
400% rise in, in, in investment um, wasn't really in, of interest to them. So, um, again, I think this is brilliant. I, I think it's exactly what Welsh rugby needs. Uh, I, it should never have taken this long, but the reality was it was probably going to be a cash flow crisis that got everybody motivated to, to actually put a really good plan ahead for the future. Uh, speaking about England and Wales makes an Irish rugby fan somewhat grateful, I would imagine, for the model that we have in this country own. And it is often described as the envy by fans of other countries, I, I guess Ireland and France to different degrees. Should it be, actually? <laughs> uh, how happy are you with the system we have in this country? It depends which province you're looking at it from, doesn't it? Um, it'd be interesting to know, I actually don't know the numbers from a, a salary cap perspective in Ireland, uh, but I can tell you from an Australian context, the, the centralised model is essentially flawed if the majority of those players come from an individual team, which was the case in the Waratahs when they won Super Rugby in, in 2016, because there's a set salary cap at around $5.5 million. But if the majority of those century contracted players play for one team, effectively their salary cap is double that of the other teams because the the nationally contracted, the national contracts and those values don't sit within the salary cap. So if you have a, a nationally contracted player at 800,000, for example, only 300,000 will sit within your salary cap. The, the 500 extra K isn't, isn't considered in the salary cap. And I'm, I'm not so sure if that's the model within Ireland, but if you're looking at it from outside of Leinster, you're thinking the vast majority of centrally contracted players are, are coming from one province and whether that sits within in that salary cap, I'm not so sure, but uh, it's a model that's definitely worked for Ireland and, and for, for Leinster specific, specifically. I think the question is, how do you share the, the I guess, the density of talented players that exist within one city amongst the other three that just can't compete with the resources that are available to them? Mm. And I guess it is that uh, element of the system that makes it the envy for other countries, Murray, when Premiership rugby fans or, or fans from Wales and even Scotland um, look at Leinster in particular and think, well, if, say, a handful of your very best players are being not independently funded, but funded outside of your organisation to a degree, it makes business a hell of a lot easier, particularly given the context of the conversation we're having about the finances of the game, generally speaking. At the same time, it's not really Leinster's problem, is it? It's not, and I suppose the other side of it is that there are decisions taken by the RFU that are frustrating for the provinces at time, most recently the Emerging Ireland Tour, where they felt it was best suited to furthering Ireland as a successful national men's team. As I said, that's where the revenue comes from. That's why all of the RFU's decisions really are focused on ensuring that that team is as successful as possible and <laughs> making as much money as possible um, absolutely it's a, it's a total advantage for, for Leinster that they have so many century contracted players um, but it's all coming from the, the one pot really at the end of the day and that's a a safety I suppose for, for Irish rugby like obviously the pandemic was deeply damaging you look at the last two years a 10 million deficit and a 35.5 million deficit having made a 3.2 million profit in the what 2018-19 season it would have been this um, is the IRFU overall. Yeah, this is the IRFU overall. So clearly th things have taken a massive dent. However, the IRFU had huge cash reserves and have been able to dig into that 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 pot, I suppose, to 
to help compensate for that as well as getting government assistance as all the sporting bodies did um, so even after all that they're still in a relatively strong position but it's never it's never really strong in, in rugby you know um, as we highlighted across the board there are these, these concerns and just because Irish rugby is in a healthier position than others doesn't mean it's it's capable of resting on its laurels and I don't think there are if you have to be fair Philip Brown before he exited said listen we're, we're by no means out of the woods now I think other sporting bodies in Ireland would have um, maybe had a bit of a laugh at that because or, or, or if you have um, those cash reserves and assets etc but um, I think our show keep, constantly needs to be looking at, it, at ways of, of growing it and um, getting more revenue into the game and building a bigger fan base and that's one of the big issues for the game is is growing the scale of the sport like relatively speaking it is still a minority sport around the world with a sm- small audience and hasn't found a way of massively boosting that the top 14 tv rights are, are taking upwards but that aside it hasn't been a massive trend in that way and as we said we, with cbc come in we haven't seen a huge explosion in in that either um so yeah i think that speaks to where irish rugby is in a decent spot compared to others but absolutely not um you know, completely bulletproof. How sound of footing is it on, to your mind, Birch? I think in Ireland, as a, at a professional level, it's on a on a very sound footing. The, you know, the clamour for tickets, South Africa and Australia sold out. You know, there's going to be huge hype going into the World Cup with England and France at home. So I think short term, there's no reason to think that commercially the revenues won't be there and that'll drip down into the into the pro game um, Connacht obviously are, have launched an ambitious project to build a new stadium that's positive so they obviously have have confidence in, in the model Leinster are hoping to uh, have just re-signed the RDS they're going to um, you know build a, a better facility there in terms of better fan experience more sponsorship um, opportunities for corporate hospitality so, so uh, Tom Park's a phenomenal facility Musgrave Park Ravenhill's brilliant kicking so I, look at I think I think in terms of health you know the French game is the best in the world in terms of financial at the financial horizon. You know the World Cup is going to, um, you know, expand rugby into even more areas there. So I would I wouldn't have any fear of the French game. I wouldn't have any fear of the Irish game. Um, I would be worried about everywhere else to be honest. Even New Zealand, even New Zealand. Um, if the All Blacks were to to continue their you know their dip and not have a good World Cup like the and and Owen, you know this more than I do, but the the New Zealand rugby public are are hard to please. You know they're hard to please. They have very high standards. They know their rugby. They're not as probably fanatical as as other fans. You know what I mean? Um. Uh, so I know they've got Silver Lake. They have their own private equity investment, and and they're a super brand. But um, I, I would be worried globally because as as Murray, I totally agree with you. It's still a minority game on a global point of view, and. Um, the reality is there's no point Ireland and France being in a decent place because you know there's no market to play each other for you know 14 times a year For uh, we, we kind of need to keep an eye on on the global health of the game and luckily look at World Rugby that's World Rugby's job um, but yeah I think I think the decisions that are made now it might be 5-10 years before they come to fruition but they're going to be absolutely key and like why in my mind, the question is almost why hasn't rugby grown more? Is it because it's just such a brutal, physical, dangerous sport that there's only a certain section of society who enjoy and embrace it? Is it because it still has a 
an image problem that it's seen as elitist and I would venture that certainly in Ireland that's part of the issue still the the image around the game um, I don't know as much about other countries I don't know maybe in, in Australia own like it's funny because rugby league and AFL are thriving seemingly financially and have big attendances what what's holding it back what's holding union back from growing there yeah you pointed out it's a competitive marketplace isn't it it's um if you're not successful if you're not winning at the top end in terms of nationally then the interest levels tend to to dwayne and they move on to other sports i think crucially like that that is it the top down approach or the bottom up approach obviously World rugby generates all its revenue essentially through the Rugby World Cup, which happens once every four years. Now, how that money is spent to to grow the game is crucial. And I, I think you've made a good point. It is a relatively small game, but I think you come back to is it the third or fourth most watched spectacle in the world in world sport is the Rugby World Cup final. I think it's it's right up there. And I think that probably gives the game a little bit of a false sense of security. And how that money is that then invested globally. And I think crucially, I know this for a fact in Australia is the resources for talent identification is absolutely sparse in comparison to other teams. So if you don't have the ability to identify your talent from a, a young age, they just get lost to other sports. And then obviously your best athletes are going into other sports. Uh, and as you said, it, it does have that... I guess, reputation or stigma of being elitist. And it's how you kind of expand your search into, into untypical, I guess, pathways from a rugby perspective is, is really crucial. Um, but but I, I comes back to me alignment around the global calendar and a, a kind of everyone pushing towards a similar outcome um, and ultimately driving a better product, I think, at the moment everyone's got their own vested interests within domestic competitions. But if, I think if the world game profession is going to move on, there needs to be deep, I guess, an openness and a willingness to, to move to a global season and have our best players playing less games, but higher quality games. I think obviously when we, we touched on in the pod a few weeks ago, that we can't be growing the amount of games our best players are playing. And we got to, we gotten shorter in their season, but make the games that they play and really count and be really high profile, exciting spectacles that draws crowds, draws eyes from a TV perspective. And, and then that ultimately, it's like it'll drive TV money, that'll drive investment into the game. You can invest that in your, your talent identification, your pathways, and make sure your foundations and infrastructures uh, from a from a I guess a low age level are are sound to be able to the game to thrive at an elite level. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there in terms of marketing the game, and and I think um I think we're struggling to we've lots of young kids, boys and girls who are playing rugby now, right? But realistically, what are they talking about um on their Snapchat or you know who are they following on TikTok and you know Instagram etc? It's not rugby players, um and and. I just saw an article yesterday that, you know, uh, Sports Pro's annually published list of the 50 most marketable athletes in the past year. There, there's no rugby player in it. And Cristiano Ronaldo is number one. And basically that measures social media metrics, right? Endorsement values. So it's not a, it's not to be on end all, but it's what young kids are, are, are talking about, what's attract, attracted them to. There's actually no rugby player in the top 100. You know what I mean? So we actually aren't 
catching the imagination of the of the next generation in terms of those stars. So Johnny Sexton is a is a star, right? One of the best root players ever played for Ireland. Um, corporates love him, uh, uh, but it, are we really selling him to the you know the twelve and thirteen year olds? Yeah, for sure. If their dad brings him to a match, they'll know of his value, etc. But that's that's the issue. Like, I don't think we're doing a big enough job of bigging up the stars, right? And again, I don't know how to do that. That's not. Uh, it's totally outside my comfort zone. But um, I think we we we're failing in that in that regard. And that's probably where the next twenty years, the middle aged the fans in 20 years time are coming from now and if we don't engage with them you know we won't have them and and, and we're not going to grow so um that's something i think we need to be concerned about because we were very focused on teams as kids so i, I like my united since i was seven unfortunately but um now it's mape it's it's you know it's the individuals that the that the next generation follow so maybe that's something and again it's outside my area of expertise but i, I see that my own son is 14 um they they follow individuals, personalities, characters, even if they're flawed. And I'm not saying we have to, you know, try and uh, manufacture flaws, but they're the people that are interested to them. Well, Johnny, Johnny has his flaws. Yeah, no, I don't. Johnny but. does, but and I agree. He's a riveting character that we probably don't see enough of. And I think this is where rugby's—I hate to say it—sorry to use the word—values or, or sense that it should maintain and uphold these nonsensical values it pisses me off when I hear it um, absolutely be a nice person and be a good teammate but you're allowed to be yourself as well and we've as a sport have absolutely quashed that individualism in, in people um, I totally agree with you Birch like even if you look in New Zealand one of the biggest threats to rugby is the NBA and the growth of basketball over there they love LeBron they love their, their superstar players over there and that sport has absolutely harnessed the power of that as have all American sports I think they've promoted and celebrated the individuals whereas rugby players still because they want to be a good teammate and good squad mate they absolutely I suppose shiver at anything that remotely looks like them promoting themselves or putting themselves ahead of the team even though it's never ever that and in fact them being more individualistic does promote the team and promote the sport and grow it so that nonsense around you know old school rugby needs to be shed and that's probably part of the image and that sense of rugby is kind of an elitist sport and, and that needs to go as well um, so yeah it's a, a really pertinent point I think and just growing growing individuals can grow the entire sport it's a, it's a really valid point Birch but that's actually specifically how you do grow a sport and it has ever been thus you mentioned the NBA there Mur. if you go back to I think the late 70s early 80s the NBA was in the absolute doldrums in terms of public interest in the States and along came two men named Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. And the league, to an exploitative degree, harnessed, well, it actually manufactured a rivalry between the two of them. Now, their two franchises would have had a rivalry anyway in the uh, Lakers and the Celtics, but they put them in uh, TV ads, uh, they put them on merch, and they became two massive personalities that ultimately lifted the profile of the entire league. And it is personalities that will grow sports. It was that way back in the 70s and 80s, it's even more so that way now because rather than uh, nail the co your colours to the mast of a team if you're a child, you may nail your colours to the mast of an individual athlete who you are following on a daily basis on Instagram, etc. And basketball continues to do a great job of that. I cover a lot of boxing, right? Boxing is probably even more so a minority sport than rugby on a global level. Nobody really gives a shit about it in a general sense. And yet 
if there's a pay-per-view fight between two big personalities, everybody in the sporting world is going to be talking about it or want to watch it, even if they have no interest in the sport itself. And like that's, you mentioned that marketing list, Birch. I'm not sure if it's the same list, but certainly I saw one recently where the only Irish athlete in the top 50 was Katie Taylor. Now, Katie Taylor doesn't even say a great deal, but she's still in the public consciousness enough in a sport that, again, nobody really cares about, where brands see her see her as being uh, a very marketable person. And, like, she's the face of... She's one of the faces of boxing. She's absolutely the face of women's boxing. Rugby needs a few more faces to be the poster boy and the poster girl of this sport if it's going to be driven on. Which brings me on to... Uh, tangentially a little bit but that documentary series that Connacht they're releasing is exactly what we need to be doing in Irish rugby if anybody hasn't seen the trailer you can check it out online but Birch like if you have a, a couple of episodes of that where people get a glimpse at the actual personalities behind the scenes and not just the players who are giving front-facing interviews after games or at press conferences which are so stagnant and boring if we're honest like honestly that's how you'll garner fans of a young age if they're still watching tv is just to be able to see what these people are actually like because we've lost that sense entirely in irish rugby i I, apart from knowing some players uh personally i really who knows what any of these guys are like you know and it used to be the case only 15 years ago you knew that guy's an absolutely unbelievable character don't say hello to that guy as he walks into extra vision he's actually a bit of a prick but even that was you kind of gravitated towards that and hopefully connacht lifting the lid a little bit on their organization would be a step in the direction of reconnecting a little bit with uh, a TV viewer or a fan who who might not be following it religiously. Yeah, and it's no surprise because they've they've been the most open uh, over the last you know ten years. There was a great TG Carr documentary uh, when Eric was was coaching, and and, and I I look enough. I played with Eric and I and I watched in Troll because I, I saw I saw what he was like as a, as a coach, and, and um, it was very kind of a natural transition for him, and now. You know, I know from uh, from dealing with with the production company that look after TG Carr's coverage. Anything they ask of Connacht that's feasible, you know, pre match, post match, they generally try and play 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 ball because uh, they're trying to grow the game. And, and this this documentary seems to be a, another layer to that. And, and again, it's 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 chance for people to see behind the scenes. And that's what like I love. I actually don't really like NFL as a game. I love Hard Knocks or you know any of those type series um, and I know it's it's uh, it's managed to a certain extent so it's not raw raw but you're at least you're getting to see more than you see when you pay your your 25 quid to go to go watch on a Saturday and I actually think it would you know if there was an NBA game, or an NFL game in, in Dublin or if I was in London you know, uh, and there was characters playing that I'd seen on on a series of Hard Knocks or whatever. I'd be more interested in going rather than for the game itself. And you know, I'm I'm more middle aged, so you know, um, I would say the the next generation are even more likely to follow that. So look, I think it's great. Again, I I think and I, I think the Irish model is brilliant, but I think sometimes the the safety valve of having that funding means maybe we're overly protective. And I think the players at the end of the day will be the ones who maybe leave the game with nobody knowing what their personality is. Um, and I think that'd be a shame. You know, I think it'd be a shame. You have a limited time where you have a, a platform, not to, I don't think it have to be, um, you know, uh, you know, totally over the top, but just, just be themselves. And, and um, I think that's, that, that that's something that we're missing a little bit at the moment, even though everything is, 
you know, from a from a financial point of view, is pretty sound. I think we that's somebody's holding us back in terms of being more creative in terms of how we engage with with fans and and potential fans. Yeah, because I do get the impression sometimes from people who aren't journalists, Murray, when they hear journalists bitching about that sort of thing, um, personalities being withheld or uh, a dilution of the amount that a player can actually say. It's that we're complaining that it's making our job harder or that it's not as enjoyable because they're giving nothing away. It's actually not that at all. I could do it in easy 15 minutes on a Wednesday or whatever. It's the fact that it's contributing very little to the growth of the game. And we're all ultimately fans of the game. We want to see it being as as big and as popular as possible. Yeah, and the players don't need us either. They can do it themselves now, as Bert says. They, they have direct access to their fan base and can build it themselves. So we're maybe not even as much part of the picture as we would, would like. But but it is absolutely an area that can continue to grow. I remember, what, 2018? I remember Ireland were approached about doing a behind-the-scenes documentary and Joe Smith obviously was not interested. And they've had a number of proposals like that that haven't worked out. The bits and pieces we have seen have been maybe a little bit managed but I agree it's a it's a really good way of dragging new fans into the game and that's a that's the big challenge isn't it now is is getting people who aren't rugby fans into the sport I think it's positive that say for example the URC is on free to air TV and that's great exposure and the sport again needs to really always I think embrace that and allow people who aren't yet converted to become converted through that access to the to the sport. That's been a massive part. You need the revenue absolutely of the the paywall TV companies um, and the, the sheer value that they'll offer you. But the longer term benefit of people being able to access the sport is is key. And that also applies to to games. You know, it's really expensive to go to, to rugby games. Now, that's interesting. Um, um, not to go talk about Munster again, but a lot of feedback recently around, you know, I, I was suggesting there's a disconnection there. A lot of people got on to me and said, listen, it's actually really expensive um, and you don't appreciate that. And I, I should absolutely acknowledge that. It's really expensive to go and support a rugby team now. Um, and, and I know Birch mentioned that the match is sold out for Springboks in Australia, but they're really high ticket prices um, and that'll feed the game. But but I think always having a, a mind to being accessible to those who aren't yet rugby fans is, is really important as well. I think a really important point in all of this is the shape of the game because it is a complex game. And I think if you look at other sports, the, the personalities that drive are generally the goal scorers, the quarterbacks, the playmakers, the players that are able to showcase their talented, talented, talentless. Sorry, not talent. I'll go again. The players <laughs> that are able to showcase their talent consistently within a game and I think that's where the shape of the game is really important that when when people come to watch these players it's not a stop start affair it's a it's an exciting compelling product that allows your your wingers your playmakers your guys that you want to see have huge involvements in game be able to thrive because they're ultimately the, the profile of athletes that people tend to want to follow and see more of if you if you compare it to other sports it's it's the flashy guys that that make the the box offices and then i think the shape of game in, in rugby union is really important moving forward that we find a model that is maintaining the interest level of a younger audience that want to be engaged and we know the areas of the game currently that lose engagement really really quickly with the with the lack of ball and play time particularly being so low and, and I think that's a pretty stark reality in Australia as well, Owen, if I'm not mistaken, is it? Because I speak to friends, Irish friends living in Oz, and they're more into league than they are union. 
And it's because, to their mind, and they might be only a casual sports fan, it's just a far better spectacle at the moment to attend a rugby league game than it is to attend a super rugby game. And the same for AFL. It's just less stop-start um, and a better, better value for your money, possibly, if you're going to attend in person. Yeah, I think that's reflected in the TV money as well, isn't it? Like the NRL signed a four-year for $420 million. The AFL signed a four-year for $4 billion, um, which indicates viewers want to watch the sports. They're engaged. For me, they're both sports are better watched on TV than live, like I've been to rugby league games live. The cameras are intentionally focused in very tightly to watch the, the obviously the big collision the carries the tackles there's a hell of a lot of walking off the ball and in, in NRL just by virtue of I think ball and play time is in and around 55 60 minutes long but it, it just doesn't stop uh and AFL similarly like it's the big moments isn't it the the the, the brilliant marks the the goals and things like that but it's a AFL is a three-hour game if you if you actually go to it but the, t- the tv work that's done to to generate the interest is, is so important and um yeah, they've, they've, they've definitely grabbed the attention of, of the audiences this side of the world compared to people just bemoan that the constant rhetoric is around scrum time, uh, lack of ball and play time, the rules too complex, the particularly the interventions of TMOs, the red cards and things like that. People just want a simple game to follow that generates excitement and keeps them engaged. And I think that's the the big aspect of the game at the moment that is is losing particularly the, the younger the younger audience isn't it they just don't have the attention span to stick with us there's a question here from one of our members Kalon scully about the financial state of the game and what that might look like in future he says when it comes to saving their own skin from a financial standpoint will the higher up bosses in rugby gladly jump into bed with morally suspect sponsors uh, we have already seen Qatar Airlines sponsoring the URC, and I can speak for the members' WhatsApp group in saying there's widespread disagreement with that. Uh, how likely is it that they will take any offer put in front of them, be it from Qatar, Saudi Arabia, or other countries, or will rugby values get in the way, Murray? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think so. I, I can't speak for the the, the bodies, the unions, and and the individuals involved there. But obviously, we've seen that Qatar Airways deal and that's um a trickle can become a stream you know and when you're facing financial difficulty and those concerns absolutely any um moral hesitation you have is probably reduced um so yeah in other sports that's the trend and and that's like why should Roby be any different as i say i think a lot of that value stuff is is nonsense and bullshit anyway um but you would hope that there are other solutions within direct control of of the unions and of world rugby and of players and of media as well we should turn the light on ourselves as well and how we portray the game and sell the game and making sure that it's accessible to that generation that Birch is talking about you know I'm definitely guilty of this myself you know I I see them how we portray the sport as what I learned when I was growing up and it's different now and and we need to adjust and um, acknowledge that as well so there's all sorts of stakeholders in this who have responsibility but you know you would hope that Saudi Arabia don't buy world rugby <laughs> yeah you would hope that just on making sure we're still connecting with the youth and how do we reach these kids are you suggesting <laughs> genuinely like is that TikTok or we, do we need to get on TikTok 
<laughs> we need more TikToks. Birch doing a nice dance on the sideline when he's working with RT or something. Um, I don't know. Let's hear. Let's hear from the members. Let's hear from the members. I'll be really fascinated for feedback from this episode and other people's solutions because that's the thing. Like we've talked about this. What we're over an hour here. Yeah, we'll wrap shortly. And, and we're we haven't got solutions. And and anytime I listen to a podcast elsewhere about this, there aren't dead set solutions. You know, it's it's hard. It's it's otherwise we you know everyone would be making loads of money from rugby. It's difficult to know the exact answer. But um, yeah, I'd encourage people to give us a shout and let let us know how they think um, the game can be improved commercially. One last one, so I'll start with yourself, Birch. And this is a question for myself. Are we fucked? We're in a, we're, we're in a bad place. We're, it genuinely is. When you see a club like Was and, and, you know, to a lesser extent, Worcester, just because of success, when they just are, are, are likely to disappear, um, I think... I think we are in a very precarious situation. When you see the level of debt that's out there, when you see the potential change model in terms of TV, TV, TV money, I think we need to stop taking, um, stop taking our feeling that our history will save us. You know, in in, in certain clubs, um, and effectively, as I said, this is this is a crisis point for for the game. Maybe we don't feel as, as at the moment in Ireland um, but we are reliant on, on having teams to play against yeah I completely agree with Birch I think it's we're at, we're at a little bit of a crossroads aren't we and I come back to that alignment and a collaborative approach to the game for the betterment of the game because Birch is right if you don't have the teams to play against the, the product soon becomes very compromised so um, yeah as you said we're only 25 years in in terms of professionalism but I think there's a lot to learn from other codes and, and creating that alignment and and commercializing the product. And I think that's why people like CVC have, have been brought in, like given huge stakes within competitions. Let's see them go to work. Look, look what Drives to Survive did for Formula One. I was a sport on his knees about five years ago and the, the interest generated off the back of a Netflix documentary just goes to show you the sport hasn't changed, but the narrative around it has. So I think there's people like CBC really need to bring their expertise to the table and and find out how, how rugby can access new markets and and expose like the brilliance of the sport and why we're all sitting here chatting about rugby every week because we love it and we just want to engage more and people around the world to to see what we see and, and continue to evolve as a as an industry. Final word to yourself, Mer. Yeah, it's an urgent time and you gotta grasp the the nettle almost and and make sustainable changes now but I'm not all doom and gloom I look at, I was in the Viva last weekend and there's 45,000 there for a regular season game between two sides who used to be rivals but one is very dominant now Leinster's stadium the RDS was packed out for that Sharks game it was riveting the URC is going to a new level in terms of its competitiveness it's more engaging than ever there's a new market there Ireland just beat the All Blacks there in New Zealand and we're going to have sellouts Aviva Stadium for for the uh, the Wallabies and the Springboks in town. There's good stuff there, but there's a lot more work to do. Not a ticket to be found for Monster against South Africa either. I actually genuinely haven't come across a Monster game for which it's been so difficult to get a ticket. Exactly. And the fact that the Cork audience is being served there um, might be one for a future po- podcast. To, to be honest, yeah, uh, we'll leave this one here for the moment, will we? Or Murray, do you want to finish off there? Yeah, the, King, the Kingspan every Friday night is is jammers. Connacht are, are, are building um, 
And those little signs are positive. And I think Owen's right. There's a really good product here. Even the Premiership, like, if you watch it, it's bloody exciting. So it's just about getting that on in front of people and attracting a few more to, to actually spend their bucks on rugby. Murray, thank you. Cheers, Gav. Owen, thanks, Emil. Cheers, Gav. Birch, thank you also. Thanks, lads. Have a good weekend. Have a good thanks weekend. to everybody at home for your continued support. We will be back with the normal free to air pod on Friday. Back again next Monday for members. So have a great end of week. Until then, mind yourselves. Take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could offer me five mil a year. I wouldn't go. Robbie Robbie weekly. Little reverse pass.